Okay. So we were discussing the idea of vessels and garments of the light, yes? Okay. So what I want to do is we're going to do a little bit of a thing. We're going to examine some examples and we're going to see are they more like garments or are they more like vessels? Um, why are we doing this? Yes. So, to cl- to, so I want I want to accomplish two things. Okay, one is to clarify, and one is to make familiar. Clarification means that the the distinction between one thing and another thing, right, is very obvious. And the other thing is that something is intuitive. That means you can use the idea. Okay. Um, one of the difficulties that happens is that a person can have but it takes a lot of mental work. Therefore, they can't use that idea as a building block for something else. An example of this is, is translating. Um, any of you working on your Hebrew translating? You're not fluent in, in biblical or rabbinic Hebrew? Yes? Yeah. It's a rough word. But... Well, well, here's the thing. When you're reading, do you actually have to stop and turn the words into another language or understand what they mean? Yes. So you notice that you talk about different things? Yeah. Right. Because you're putting so much mental energy and so much memory in parsing sentences and noticing, like, wait a minute, what's the, like, whether you're, you, whether you're, whether you're really thinking about it in, in grammar terms or not, you're like, okay, what's the translation? Does, you know, what's the verb here? Like, how does it, and that actually, you finally have understood the sentence in whatever language it is, probably English. It's like, right. Now you want me to actually think about what it means conceptually. Right. Um, Right. This is this is what I tell my, my, my students in Gemara. Part part of learning Gemara is not the translating. Gemara part of learning Gemara is trying to figure out why the Gemara has said what it said. But there's so much work most people have to do before they get to that point. They don't actually get to the real learning part. Unless you speak Gemara. Yeah, but like none of it makes sense otherwise too. That's the thing. Like I could translate the words, and that's not what we're talking about. Yes, it's a skill to learn how to translate for another language, another culture. Do third graders start from there? I just remember my brothers would come home with like they were learning what we're learning in our class now, like in third grade. And I'm just wondering. Third grade? Like, How old is third grade? They were seven or eight. They're probably learning Mishnah. That sounds really, really young for Gamara. They usually they start learning Gamara. Like, no, they usually like, start Gamara like, like depending on the school, seven. eight, nine, ten, usually. No, like sixth, seventh grade. Yeah, they started. Eight. What? what? That's eight. No. Yeah, okay. So eight. they went to that really. I mean, and I don't want to talk about teaching Gemara to children. It's like a whole other topic. Sorry. I'm talking about... Okay, so the reason why I want to do this is because one of the things that Chassidah says about ideas is that if you have a lot of examples of the same concept, even though each example is different, right? So the concept doesn't show up in the, same, in the examples in the same way. And there's a lot of um, ways in which those examples don't occur. You can see the idea manifest in many different examples over and over again. It, A, makes it clear, and the idea starts to become more familiar, more intuitive. And then you can use it. So that's what I would like to do for starters. Okay. So we're going to start with ideas and words. So we have ideas and we have words, yes? Now to be clear about the difference between ideas and words is I'm going to give you a little riddle. Just because I think this is cute. If a tail, you know, like the tail of an animal, if a tail is called a leg, how many legs does a dog have? One. Okay, now, the, what are we seeing with these different answers? Is the difference between the word leg and 
the concept we normally represent with that word. Right? Because if, if, if I mean, how many legs does a dog have, I'm still meaning the concept. Right? The tall tail doesn't change anything, it still has four, right? Yeah. But I mean, how many things get the word actually than five, right? Mm-hmm. And then one, if we're saying we, we've uprooted it, okay? Um, so we have ideas and we have words. Our words, so if we say like ideas are like the light, okay? We're not going to worry about how much ideas actually parallel light. We're not going to worry about that. But if ideas are like the light, are the words like a vessel or like a garment? And why? If the wor- ideas are going to be like the light, are the words like vessels or the words like garments? Why would you say vessels? I'm um, saying vessels because, like how you were saying yesterday, that how you perceive things is been mixed with, like, when you're saying a word, using words, two people can come away with different things, which is why I think you have the... Yeah, but two people coming with different things is not an aspect of vessel. That has to do with a separate issue, which is the, which is the perceiver. I feel like it's a vessel because instead of a garment, you get the totality of what it is. You're not gonna get the totality of the idea in the world. Yeah, but you're, it, it's, it, it encompasses your idea. Like you're not. What? Well, it depends on how. Oh, let, let's let's think about it. Let's see. Let's take it. Let's take an idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's take an idea. Um, Let's take the idea of marriage that was brought up, yeah? It's an idea, okay? Now, if I use the word marriage, yeah? Or if I use the word nisuin, which is Hebrew, does the idea change? Mm, no. No. Same idea, right? Okay, so that already tells us that when we switch between languages, right, the idea doesn't change. Now, to be fair, this is a little bit tricky because the meaning of the word word is a little bit complicated because what's one word in one language could actually be... Right, for instance, the word vayomer in biblical Hebrew translates as... And he said, right, which is a whole sentence, fine. So what we have to really think about it is a, is a little bit of language and not get hung up on you know, whether, there's, whether it's one word or two words because that's, that's immaterial. Right. So it could be that you have what's called um, a lexical gap, which means, which means that a language doesn't have one single word for an idea that other languages have a single word for. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, so that, that doesn't mean you don't have words for it. You just have to use many words. Right. Like German is great about taking every idea and giving it one word for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like... Um, um, in English, we we do that quite less. We keep them as separate words, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but but the, but the point is, the fact that I switch between one language and other language doesn't change. Now, sometimes what's one word in one language could actually be a paragraph in another language, right? So, for instance, what's a mikvah in English? But it's not really. I mean, you can use that if you want to just like have your translation flow, but like. That doesn't actually tell the person what a mikvah is, right? If I, a mikvah is a mikvah, a mikvah is a, a, a collection of water 
right? According to specific, I, now I could be more specific, but a collection of water that doesn't have to be a collection of water according to that is that satisfies requirements according to Jewish law that is used for purification processes in Judaism. That's a mikvah. Okay, now, mikvahs don't have to be rainwater, but they can be the ocean, they can be natural springs, okay? Um, but, now, if, I, if in Hebrew, right, I'm talking to people who, like, I say mikvah, everyone knows, I mean a mikvah, like, they don't really, if I say a mikvah, if I say the ocean's a mikvah, everyone knows what I mean, because, like, right? So sometimes, what's one word is a paragraph, another language, okay, but the, did the idea change because we went from a lot of syllables to few syllables? Okay. Um, even in the same language, could two people use it, be trying to speak the same idea and not realize it because they're using different words, yeah. but they mean the same idea? Yes. And could we have the reverse problem that we could be using the same word and actually mean different ideas? So is it correct to say there's this nice unity between words and ideas? This word and idea? Is it always that that's correct? This, this, so, di so, I, so again, three things I pointed out here. Number one, different. You can say the same thing in different languages, right? You can say the same thing in the same language of different words, and you can use the same word in the same language to mean different things. Okay. To make that clothes, because you can change clothes. That sounds like clothes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's garments, right? Those, whatever the idea is, it doesn't become a different idea because you put ah, you put it in this word. So, word the idea is whatever it is. This is the problem with language, right? Is that I say a word, and you're pretty convinced I'm using the word to garb this idea, right? It's like a little wrapping paper, and you're pretty sure that you're getting a mug, but really you're getting a teddy bear. And you're very confused when you open it up, and it was a teddy bear because you thought it was a mug. And this happens all the time when people are talking. Okay, we had this. Remember, we spoke about hate. Right? That I was using hate as a broad general category of emotion. Right? And there were other people saying, no, hate is very specific. Right? It's like a very intense kind of thing. We should use other words like dislike or, you know, um, disapprove. And I was saying, yeah, but that all fits in the general category of hate. Okay. Okay. This is the problem called semantics of like words and what they mean. Good? Okay. Now, what about diagrams? Like when you like diagram an idea on a board. We can make a chart or something. Is that like a vessel or is that like a garment? Vessel? vessel. Well, think about it. If the idea is more complicated, what happens to the chart? It's more complicated. Mm -hmm. If the idea is more simple. Yeah. Right, this is why charts actually are quite useless and words are great once you get to a certain level of complexity. Right? I make a chart and I say, like, you know, so we're gonna we're gonna contrast these two things, right? But then there's this other dimension, so then we're gonna like think of it like three-dimensionally, and then there's this other, like, and at some point you're like looking at it like, like that's just too complicated to figure out what you're talking about, right? Whereas words, right? Words have this amazing thing that we can subsume many ideas into one idea. For instance. Let's take a nice word, the economy. What is the economy? The economy is the interaction of different markets. There you go. What is a market? It's your favorite game. What? It's not my favorite game. I have other games that are a little bunch of, what, what is a market? 
Very good, right? A market, we can just add a, a little bit more. A, 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 yeah, we can say like this. Like, a, a, a market is a social institution for the exchange of certain kinds of goods and services. Okay? And now we have to like understand goods and services, right? Now the thing is like, once each of those ideas becomes intuitive, you can then put it into the word, and then eventually it's possible for a person, usually someone who's like an economist, can say the word economy and not just be like repeating fancy words and not know what they mean, but actually really know what they're talking about, right? And then they can just say something like the economy is going up, and that's meaningful. But if you break that down, it would become a complex, you could take, literally write a whole book explaining what the word, the, the sentence, the economy is doing well means, right? Okay? But if you're not going to do that all just in a, one big chart, <laughs> there'd be so many different arrows and bubbles and it would, it would just it'd be overwhelming, right? Okay. So charts, more like vessels. Okay. Um, Art. And I'm, before, before you answer, I would like to define art. I'm giving you the Hasidic definition of art. When Hasidus ever talks about art, it understands art as the following. Art, okay, is where you take some human experience, right, and you are conveying it through a medium. Okay, that's what you're doing with art, a medium. Okay. In other words, okay, um, in order for something to be art, it has to have a medium. So it could be sound, like music, it could be you know, painting, it could be dance, it doesn't matter, right? It has to be some medium. And there has to be some human experience that is being expressed by the artist and supposed to be experienced by those that are viewing or participating in the art, okay? So art with a message from the point of chassidus is not called art. And it's like, like where you're trying to give an idea over. That's not art, right? So like I'm gonna like stand on the street and like you know do something crazy to call attention to a particular social injustice and call that art. That's not art from the point of chassidus. So performance art isn't like a thing for chassidus. Yeah, it's a, I mean it's it's a different kind of a thing, right? Right. So saying, right? Whereas like if you take a piece of music, right, that expresses longing, both the person who writes the music has to imbue, imbue it with their own inner sense of longing, and then it's supposed to evoke that in the listener, right? Or the same thing with painting, the same thing with dance, the same thing with sculpture, the same thing with that, that kind of a... Now, that's a whole world in, in and of itself, but that's what I mean by art. Okay, so it's Ideas art. No, so now we're going to use, so we're going to, we're going to talk about art. So the medium, the clay, or the paint, or the sounds, depending on what kind of art it is, and the human experience that you're trying to convey through that, is that like light and vessels or light and garments? Sure, light and vessels, no? Yeah, it's light and vessels, right? right? It's very clear that the, any change in the medium completely alters what the experience is, right? Right? Um, and one can argue, and I'm not going to take a side in this debate, but there is an argument if certain mediums are even better for certain experiences. Like, are there things that you can express artistically better in dance than in sculpture, or vice versa? This is a debate in art. I'm not saying it, I'm coming down one side or the other, but the reason it's a debate is because the, the material that you're working with, the medium you're working with, is like a vessel. That There's that fusion. Okay. Um, let's use another example. Okay. Body language. 
as opposed to linguistic language? Vessel or garment? Yeah. Vessel. Why would you say vessel? Because like the whole like, did I make a bracha? I don't, I don't think so. I don't remember drinking any coffee. I remember picking it up, but I don't remember drinking it. Because okay. like the whole concept of being able to read body language is there's certain features that are like not thought about that are not something that like we individually decide, but it's something that just happens to be common to everybody. Like crossing your arms when you're like feeling closed off, that that's not necessarily something that we think about, but it's something that, like everybody does when they feel that way. Right. So you've picked up as an important thing for identifying vessels is that if we make this, we say there's a, there's a strong correlation between the vessel and what's coming, th- between the, the, the receiver and the light that it's containing, then that's more vessel-like, right? So nobody's really overjoyed to see you and then goes like this. Right? There's just not, that's not, I mean, you could do that as like an act, but not as, in, not as instinctive body language, right? So defensiveness, right? So there is this kind of correlation between certain kinds of postures and certain types of facial expressions and what you're feeling. So that's more like a vessel, right? As opposed to, let's use a contrast, um, um, there's gestures we use to communicate that are culturally specific, mm-hmm. okay? So, um, for instance, um, in some cultures, right, if you shake someone's hand, what does that mean? You're greeting them, right? Right? And other cultures, right, shaking them hand, was shaking, anyone know how like shaking hand came about, by the way? It's very weird. It's a, diff- a totally different cultural thing. Like, don't want to think about it in a sense. Like, the, like in the, the original way handshaking came about, you would never, like, shake your friend's hand. Right? Handshaking was a someone you don't trust. How do you know that they're not going to stab you? Because they don't have a knife in their hand. And how do they know that you're going to stab them, right? In the Middle Ages, you got two knights, and we're going to sit down and talk, right? It's like, huh, okay, fine. We're, we're, no, one, no one's about to stab each other. We can sit down. Same, right? Okay? And you can even say that there's different kinds of handshakes and different things, right? They represent different things, but there's, there's a lot of cultural variation there, right? So, let me use one more example, okay? Sometimes a teacher was trying to, or not a teacher, anyway, trying to explain something, and they make a hand gesture. Um, to cup, how can I like drive the point home or clarify something? Okay, and it's always funny because if you intentionally try and do it, it doesn't work. Okay, but the, but the but the like you know, they'll they'll do something like, and that right, it'll look like look a little this or something. Now, what is that meant to do? Right, it's not words. It doesn't represent. There's no idea there, right? It's just a, it's just a it's just a random hand gesture. What is that meant to do? Right. It, it triggers the mind of the listener to like shift their thinking to focus, and all of a sudden they get the idea better. Right? But there's like really no correlation between that gesture and what's being communicated through that gesture. Right? And so there it's much more like a garment 
than a vessel, right? And that's the thing we're going to want to always look at. Is, the, is there a kind of a correlation, a lining up between what is being conveyed and the thing that's conveying it? That's more of a vessel. If there's something kind of arbitrary about it, you could put the same thing somewhere in a different, in a different um, garment, then that's more of a garment. That's the idea. Okay. Now, this is much more discussed in this idea, but I think we get the idea more or less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now, when I put on tefillin, is my tefillin a garment of God's light or a vessel of God's light? Okay, now explain what that means. What would it mean that it's a vessel of God's light? What would it mean that it's a vessel of God's light? I'm not saying you're right. I'm just saying it, let's, let's understand what you're claiming. Even when I'm not using it, it still has that light. No, 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 no. No, because it's only, it's only going to be a vessel or a garment for the light when I'm doing the mitzvah. So while I'm wearing the tefillin... Very good, right. If we say there's something special about the light that reveals Hashem in the tefillin that is distinct from the light than, say, Shabbos candles, then that means, now, obviously, Hashem is not different, right? So then that would make it a vessel, right? Off on the other hand, we were to say that it's the same revelation of Hashem in the tefillin as as in the Shabbos candle, then that would make them garments. Good? Make sense of the difference? Okay. So now we've got to figure out which one is which. Now, um, we could go into the Tanya, which is technically the Tanya class, but we're going to go a little bit around, and then we'll get back to the Tanya. There's a story in the Zohar. Are you over 40? No. So am I allowed to teach you Zohar? Yes. Okay, fine. Um, Isn't it you're not allowed to learn Zohar on your own? There was something called the Council of the Four Lands, which was a kind of united nations of all the Ashkenazic Jewish communities. And they made a decree banning the study of Kabbalah, with the exception of certain books for anyone under the age of 40, unless special permission was granted. There's debate as to whether that is still halakhically in effect. Um, most people seem to think it's not. Are you under 40? Have you studied? I have studied Kabbalah, and I am under 40, and most Talk authorities seem not to be particularly worried about it. Did I really know what he was doing when he was 40? Didn't he die for years? That's right. <laughs> He'd been dead for two years. So there you go. Um, yeah. Um, but, there's, uh, but there's plenty of Zohar. And the thing is, that, there was, that never included like reading the Zohar just on like, a superficial level. What about Sefer Yitzir? Sefer Yitzir, you can read. You won't get anything out of it anyway. Go for it. If you read it with a commentary, that's different. You read Sefer Yitzira, like, go for it. You're, yeah, I, don't go crazy. Don't, don't go crazy. crazy. You know what it's saying? You have no idea what it's talking about. Yeah, you don't know what it's talking about. It's like a craziness. You'll go crazy. No, it's, it's, you, have you learned Mishnah? I spent two days trying to read, like, a page of Sefer Yitzira, and I have no idea what I read. Yeah, okay. It's not, but not go crazy. It's just, there's words that you have no idea what they mean. Yeah. Okay. Um. So there's a story in the Zohar that there were two rabbis, and they were walking, and they encountered the child. 
There was a, there's a child, child? In the, the child. There's a child in the Zohar. There's a, there was a child in the Zohar. I forget who was the son of, but the Zohar refers to him, the Yunka, Hayunka, the child. And this child was apparently a very profound Kabbalist uh, because like, he's even quoted in the Tanya. The Zohar speaks a lot of other things. Says. So this child sees these two great rabbis, sages of the mission, and he says, I can smell that you did not recite the Shema today. I can tell you didn't recite the Shema today. Now, sages of the mission, you can imagine they skip the Shema. Probably not a good thing, right? So, they said that they did not recite the Shema because they were involved in the, in, if I remember correctly, they were involved in the mitzvah of helping an orphan bride um, get married. And there's a rule that when you are involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from doing other mitzvahs. There's details to this, but that's the general rule. That if you're, invo- mitzvah, mitzvah. if you're involved in one mitzvah and you, and you do not stop the mitzvah you're doing to go and do another mitzvah. I mean, if you can do both, that's great, but sometimes you can't. Okay. Um, I had a friend who um, became religious because of his, he became Christian and his parents freaked out and, and got an organization called Jews for Judaism involved. And um, now he's a rabbi on campus somewhere. So the, the, the person who got him out of Christianity, who I don't know if he runs Jews for Judaism or he's uh, just the main people there, his name is Rabbi Kravitz. Very interesting person. So he one time for bring for us in yeshiva, and he told a story about like there was this person who was involved in Christianity. And he was speaking to them like on the Shabbos afternoon or something, Shabbos morning, whatever. Started speaking to them, and they had an eighteen-hour conversation. It's like I didn't stop for mincha. I didn't stop for anything. It's like you're saving a Jew from Christianity. You're exempt from all the mitzvahs in the world, right? It's like excuse me, can you wait fifteen minutes for me to stop for mincha? Like that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something like that. I mean, you can talk for a long... If you're talking about deep things, you talk for a long time. Yeah. But 18 hours is taking a long time to double. <laughs> I mean, you... Sh- you sh- I mean, sure, the conversation didn't start out deep. It goes on for... Like, you, know, you can talk about nothing for two or three hours easily <laughs> before you get to something real, whatever. Anyway. Um, that stuff goes, like, in and out. Yeah. But it was just like... You weren't going to stop the conversation. People... It's a mitzvah. Anyway, so... So now we've got a problem here because let's say that this yunka, which we should say, this, this child, is sensitive to the godly light from them doing the mitzvah, right? Well then, he, what is he sensing? He's sensing that they're missing what? The light from Shema, right? What does that kind of sound like? That the light that you got from Shema is different than the light there you get from other mitzvahs, right? Which is why he's like, I don't, I don't get the sense that you have Shema. The, the effect, the residue of that revelation isn't present, right? That would make it sound like you're reciting the Shema as a vessel, right? That the light is colored by the Shema, so that the light that comes through the Shema is a different kind of a sense of God than comes through, say, the mitzvah of marrying off an orphan bride. Okay. But if that's the case, then why is it that if you're involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from doing another mitzvah? Because then we should say, well, we, we shouldn't say that if you're involved in mitzvah, you're exempt from mitzvah. Like, no, we should figure out what's more important, what's less important, just follow the priorities. And we, the thing is, we do have priorities. Because when it comes to doing mitzvahs, we do have a rule. Let's say I'm a, I have two mitzvahs in front of me, and I haven't started either. There are priorities of what takes precedence over what. Right. 
So seemingly, if every mitzvah brings out a different revelation, we just figure out which mitzvahs are more important and do those. How can there be mitzvahs that are more important but others are all like the same? Well, I'm asking the same question. Because this story makes it kind of sound like on one level mitzvahs are all the same and on one mitzvahs it's not. They're all different. So how are we going to reconcile this? Everything has its own light, but that doesn't make one inherent. Like that doesn't make them equal necessarily. Everyone has their own light, but every mitzvah has their own light, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other, or one has a stronger, or like whatever, or more necessary. Okay, and then it goes deeper. According to Kabbalah, do you know why if you're involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from doing the other mitzvah? Because it's all the same light. <laughs> Which now makes the story even more weird, right? Because then what's the difference which mitzvah you did? Unless we were to say that there's two levels to the mitzvah, right? There, what if, there's, no, there's no such rule that says that mitzvah that involves another person automatically trumps a mitzvah that doesn't involve another person. Okay. There are differences, but there's not a rule that says if I have two mitzvahs in front of me, one mitzvah involves helping another person, one mitzvah does not involve helping another person, the mitzvah involves helping another person always takes priority. That is not true. In fact, this is only true for a man, but if, I'm, if, I have the, if right now I have two options, which is I can go help somebody who needs some help, or I could sit and learn Torah. And if I don't help the person... One second. If I don't help the person, someone else will help them anyway. So then what's the halacha? Then I should learn Torah, not go help the person. That's true. Yeah, but that's got nothing that's got nothing that's got nothing that's got nothing to do with that's the same thing that's the same thing with any mitzvah. Any mitzvah that's an obligation that can be done by someone else is secondary to Torah study. Any mitzvah that's an obligation that can't be done by someone else so proceeds Torah study. Something to do with another person, not another person. That difference doesn't occur. Yeah, but in that situation, your mitzvah isn't necessarily needed if someone else can do it. So, the so, then, so then you are, it's not the same thing. No, but my point is that, that the, 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 the distinction has nothing to do with the person, whether you need another person or not. The same thing is true if I were to take, let's say, um, my produce needs to be tied and you take Truman Meister. Right. Okay. Or, and, and I could send someone else to do it and I could learn. Or I could do it myself. What's the halacha? Okay. Send someone else. But what if you can't send someone else and you can mm-hmm. opt it and learn and do it instead? Then I, ha- then I have to. Then I have to stop learning, go do it, and then go back to learning. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's rules about these priorities, but that rule that involves helping another person is not automatically a trump card that that means that you were right. Okay. So the thing is that there are different levels to mitzvahs. Okay? So I'm going to go way out of the Tanya right now. Okay? Um, and we're going to talk about how many levels of mitzvahs? Three levels of mitzvahs. Every mitzvah is how many levels? Three. Okay, which means every time you do it, so there are three things. This is the, not the marker that works. Okay. And we are going to give them names. Why are we going to give them names? Because it's easy to keep track of stuff when it has a name. Okay. Does anybody object to me writing in Hebrew? 
No. No? no. Script? Okay. okay. So we're going to have the first levels called Mitzvahs HaMelech. Okay? The level above that is Mitzvahs Hashem. The level above that is called Mitzvah Sai. So, we can say that the mitzvahs are Mitzvah Samelch. Now translate Mitzvah Samelch, please. The commandments of the king. Mitzvahs mean commandments. Malach means the king. So the commandments of the... What does mitzvahs Havaya mean? Well, that's Hashem's name. I just wrote it out with a little dash so I can erase it. The commandments of Hashem. And what does mitzvahs I mean? My commandments. Obviously, the only one that makes sense is if you're talking on God's behalf, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking as if you're God. Okay. And you'll see in the Torah that these two expressions are used. Okay? Well, this expression is not actually used in the Chumash, but it is an important idea. Okay. Now, we're going to start with Mitzvah Samelech even though it's not really relating to our chapter, just so we have a full idea. And then we're going to go to Mitzvah Savaya. Havaya is the classic way of pronouncing this name when you don't, because you don't actually want to say the name. So we call it Havaya, which is just switching the letters around. Okay. And then Mitzvah Isai, my Mitzvahs. Okay. If a king tells you to do something, okay, why do you need to listen? Because he's your Because he's in charge. That's right. On that level, what is wrong about not listening? Disrespectful. Right, you're undermining the authority. What's correct about obeying? That you're, that you're agreeing with it, like that you're following it. Yeah, you're affirming the authority. Yes, that's right. right. So basically, it comes down to this, yeah? This is very, very simple, yeah? There's a Kohen. There's a woman a Kohen can't marry. He loves her. She loves him. The rabbi says, God says no. So that's a simple question. Is God really in charge or is he not? Yes. So then you can't get married. Discussion over. And if he's not, and if you get married, what are you saying? My God. Right? Now, God says um, that when you get up in the morning, you should touch anything until you wash your hands. Okay. And if you don't do that, what are you saying? Not really an authority, right? And if you do, right? Any really difference between those those things? No, because no. sometimes one, ones are like and I'm not sure what you mean. Like every little nitty gritty halakha, when I when if I don't do it, that means that I'm disobeying Hashem. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest, right? Our basic attitude, and I'm saying our, I'm talking about people in general, most. 
We're, most of us, I think, are in this category. Basically, we were those things that Hashem commands me to do and not do, which A, I otherwise would enjoy doing. B, I in the mood to be more religious and inspired to do. Or C, are already habitual, right? Or D, there's some sort of like social cost for not complying. Those things I do. But the mere fact God will do, not actually seem to motivate me to do or not do things. I'm not following little nitty gritty, not little nitty gritty. No, no, that's, I'm not disobeying Hashem's. Like, I don't mean to disobey. I don't know. 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 And here's the rule. Instead of thinking of it, instead of thinking of it as a switch, we think of it as follows. The more that you actually relate to Hashem as a king, what happens? The more you care about that authority. That's right. That's it. Okay. Is that is that something to work on? Sure, something to work on. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I'm gonna make an assumption. I'm gonna make an assumption, okay? I wanna make I wanna make, make an assumption about you. Is that okay? It's correct. I didn't tell you this yet. What you know what it is? My assumption is that you grew up in a religious family and a religious community, am I correct? What? Okay. Now, okay. There are people who've not grown up, either because they're Bali Chuva or they're converts or whatever. Now, for them, everything is new. Okay? So people who grow up religious have this really bad habit of feeling like the stuff that whatever the community that they grew up in, whatever family they grew up, make a big deal about is that's what God must make a big deal about. And whatever people just like, eh, it's not a big deal, or they don't even know, right? And they don't ever get the experience of like, encountering all seven, boom. Okay. Unless you learn. Unless you learn. And then all of a sudden, what happens? And all of a sudden, what happens, right? So this is what I tell the guys when they learn smicha. What's happening is- Do you feel like people who don't grow up religious feel? Yeah, like, like, of course you can't drive on Shabbos, but like, the people who grow up, they've never been religious. Like, what do you mean I can't drive? Like, like, why does God care? Like, what's the big deal? So I drove to the Chabad house. I came to the Chabad house. So I drove. I mind the whole thing. Right? And like, what if I'm married to a non-Jew? Like, I love Judaism. I love God. Torah. I come to Torah class with Rabbi, and it's amazing. We learn about such deep things. I feel so inspired. Why does it matter that I want to marry a non? Like, everybody has their things. Is driving on Shabbat in order to get to like Shabbat program or whatever it is, and then participating in that at the same time anything? Like in terms of connecting with God, staying at home is bigger? Yeah. So 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 here's the thing. We always need to be very careful. That's why I'm breaking this up into levels. What level of relationship we're talking about. Well, I think I get the here's answer your One sec, one sec, one sec. You have to first figure out what level of relationship we're talking about, okay? When somebody, through no fault of their own, right, a guy gets up in the morning, takes a shower, shaves, puts on his best clothes, drives to shul, puts out his cigarette before walking into the shul because he's coming 
right? Making sure that he ate a good breakfast because he wants to be in shul for to hear, you know, the, 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 the davening on Yom Kippur. And like, he really doesn't, know, uh, like, like, through no fault of his own, doesn't know anything about doing his own. He's many ways. But he has a sense of Jewish culture. Like, that gives Hashem tremendous pleasure. True. But in terms of but but in terms of in terms of the notion that like mitzvahs accomplish things, or in terms of the idea that God is real authority, the first recognized authority who grew up not I do have friends who do this, they grew up not religious. And it's true, God is God, and God is really in charge. They each did their own way. What's the one that they Christian? Um No, he should the other one he he I might have told you a story. One Saturday afternoon, one Saturday afternoon, he he thought, well, you know, there's this like he's from Christian. Wait a minute, like Jews, Shabbos, God wants us to keep Shabbos. Like, yes. So what did he do? So like, there's someone who's like, wait a minute, God is... Probably. Right, but there's someone who's like, like, God is really an authority. Well, then the first thing you do when you recognize you have an authority is you check to make sure, like, you don't assume. Yeah, right? So this person, this person, this person who walks the... Who does all things in, human. in terms of the, the Jewish spark, in terms of that, 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 that connection, and that's precious, people that... So, but if you're talking about the idea that Hashem is a melech, that Hashem is an authority, they really don't have an authority. Because if they did, the first thing they would do... I don't, I don't want to say that right now. I just want to understand the difference between these things. I'm not making clear about the difference. I'm just telling us what these things are. So yeah, when a person who grows up religious and they're used to just doing what everyone else does, all of a sudden learning Salah, they're like, wait a minute. Like, it turns out that what everyone does is not necessarily what God says is okay. Exactly, Sarah. Like, probably when I go to Shul, I make more barriers and someone's sitting on the couch doing nothing. Nuh-uh. Everything. If I touch them, they're not allowed to move that child. for no reason. Anyway, anyway. So, so when the Bacham learns, when the Bacham learns Smicha, they, so they, what ends up happening, they tend to learn two things. They tend to learn the laws of Shabbos and the laws of kosher. So the general thing is like this. Religious people, when it comes to laws of kosher, by and large, are way more stringent than God in terms of their actual kitchens. Which, generally speaking, way more careful. With what? Like, what would happen if, like, you came home and you put down the salami on the milk counter? She freak out. Yeah, you look like it was, it was like not. Like, you look at your like, oh, no, that's such a big deal. You wipe down the counters like, oh, no, like. Oh. Right, but, but, one, one second, one second. One second. Okay. I think everything we do is right, but there tends to be a greater sense of caution. And then they learn the laws of Shabbos. And it turns out, so then the joke is that when you learn the laws of kosher, like, that's permitted and that's permitted. I didn't know that was also permitted. And then you learn Shabbos, like, that's permitted and that's also permitted and that was also permitted. And you learn halacha. It turns out that what God expects of you is not. So this idea that if he's making authority, so then in that level, there's no difference between the mitzvahs. All down to this, level, this level, the mitzvahs are about one thing, one thing only. Is that a charge or not a charge? I think there's a difference between one mitzvah and another mitzvah. There's not bigger mitzvahs, not smaller mitzvahs. There's not bigger mitzvahs, not smaller mitzvahs. And there's someone who, the idea that Hashem is an authority is something that they're working on and they're growing, trying to instill in themselves. And that plays out in the small details. And there's a person who's hefker. When I'm in the mood for Judaism, I do more Judaism. When I'm not in the mood, I do less Judaism. I do the Judaism I grew up with. I do the Judaism that's socially expected of me. But like, that's it. That's a whole dimension of Judaism where we relate to the mitzvahs as mitzvah samelch. And there's a level of godly reality. If you want to know where it is on your Kabbalah chart, right here. We talk about the mitzvahs as they relate to the sphere of malchus. The mitzvahs are all basically one thing, which is, is God really the king or is he not? Is he really in charge or is he not? Okay. 
This is, you've heard of this phrase being Mikabal Omel Choshmaim, accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So which mitzvah are you accepting upon yourself to do when you do that? All of them. All of them. Right? If, and you're even accepting the mitzvahs that he hasn't given but theoretically could give. And he won't because he won't change the Torah. But if he would, I would accept those ones too because he's in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm is like. Yeah. There was a rabbi named Rav Moshe Feinstein. What? What don't you understand? You look like you're more uncomfortable than understanding, but that's just my observation. So it's in the 613? It's like goes together? Okay, maybe we're not clear. Halacha means what we do. Mitzvah means what? Mitzvah means commandments. The only way to fulfill the commandments is to follow the halachas. The halacha don't exist without mitzvah, right? So basically it's one. So, like yeah, one so, six, so following 613 mitzvahs includes every single thing that you need to do within every mitzvah of the halacha of the mitzvah. That's right. right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Including the mitzvah to listen to the rabbis. That's one of the 613. It's actually more than the 601 of them. Well, that's the mitzvah that I run on? No, there's... There's a biblical mitzvah to listen to the rabbis. Is it a biblical mitzvah not to serve rabbis? Meaning rabbanim or like mitzvah to rabbanim? What does that mean? It has like a whole, like at many right halachas. Yeah, there is like a lot. No, there is. That. There is. There's a whole section in Shukhrach about it. Yeah. Oh, okay. About what's the, what level of authority rabbis have and when you have to listen to rabbis, we don't have to listen to rabbis, when you can ask another rabbi, when a rabbi, when, who has to listen to which rabbis, and yeah. And how to recognize rabbis? Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just like there are laws of Shabbos, there are laws of rabbis. Which is why you shouldn't listen to anything I say as final halacha guidance, because I don't qualify. You're a rabbi. I am a rabbi in the sense that I learned the material and passed tests. I'm not a rabbi in the sense that I actually am in the practice. Right. One of the rules is that you, you, you don't ask people. Yeah. You don't ask people. You don't ask people for final halachic rulings that are not involved in the practice of making halachic rulings. Okay. So, on this level... Okay. Like, it's all you have On this level... On this level... Okay, this, on this level... Mitzvahs are about one thing and one thing only. Every single mitzvah is... In, is, is God says, I want, to, you do, I want to instill into you one thing and one thing only, which is... I am God... And you are my subjects. I am in charge. This is my world. You are my people. And that is that. There was a rabbi named Rav Moshe Feinstein. You heard of Rav Moshe Feinstein? Yes. Okay. Rav Moshe Feinstein was not a chassid. Um, but he was very chassid What? What? I love everything about him. Right. But I Remember our definition yesterday of a chassid about that inner spot? Right. So. So Chassidim have a way of adopting anybody who's, who's, a, who's alive in their Jews saying he's very because that's really what it's about. Right. right. And the thing is, he would appreciate that. Um, that's true. That's true. Something the Rebbe used to make fun of all the time and for dragons. Make fun of? Yes. What? About people who, people who are so busy being involved in like, are they Chabad enough, but they're not actually like, you know, living with God. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
So he was one time at a rabbinic conference. Okay? I'm going to tell you two stories. One is of Rosh Feinstein, one is of Alter Rebbe. Okay? And they're the same story, but different. Okay? So Rosh Feinstein was one time at a rabbinic conference, and there was a, they made a minion in one of, like one of the hallways or something, for Mincha or something. And somebody, who was not the wisest person in the world, decided to daven Shimon Esrei right by the doorway. Now, the halacha is, the halacha is, that you are not allowed to walk in the four amos, which is about six feet, in front of a person who's davening Shimon Esrei. Okay, so if I daven Shimon Esrei, so basically, so if I'm davening Shimon Esrei here, then basically from here to that, I created, I created a halachic wall that you're not allowed to walk. Through. You're not allowed to walk through. Yeah. Under a okay, so there's a whole discussion. There's a whole discussion. There's a whole discussion. How it works in shul? I'm not getting into. It's very good, but but that is that is that's the baseline. There's a lot of details. What are the exceptions? Okay, so this person Davin Shmuel right right in front of the doorway. So then, like everyone's walking out, and because and he's still Davin Shmuel Moshe Feinstein gets there and he stands there and he waits and he says Mishnayis by heart. That's what he would do. As long as you know, tells him that he should go. I mean, in, in a respectful way. And Ramesha Feinstein looks at him with eyes like wide, like the person just said the most ridiculous thing ever. He says, what? The guy no, no, someone else. Oh. He says, but there's a wall here. Because if Hashem says you can't walk there, then that's a wall. Like you can't walk through walls, right? So what's more of a wall? This or the authority of Hashem? Wow. Huh? Levels, levels. Okay, so that's mitzvah Hashem is the king, he's an authority, and in that sense, it doesn't matter what the mitzvah is. It's all the same. Positive, negative, all the same stuff. Okay. There's a story of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was at a wedding. His granddaughter married the grandson of Rebbe Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev. It was great, the great wedding of Jablin, which I always mispronounce, but we're going to say Jablin because I don't know how to pronounce it. Why was it called, why was it in Jablin? Because Jablin was halfway between the Alter Rebbe and Rebbe Yitzhak of Berdichev. It's halfway between Berdichev and Liavi. They didn't want to make the other one travel. Um, and like up until World War II, like that was the, for the Jewish communities there, their claim to fame was this great wedding happened. There's a lot of stories. One of the things that happened was they were in the wedding hall. There's a huge crowd, and they wanted to get out of the wedding hall. And so Rabbi Yitzchak took the Alter Rebbe by the arm and said, why don't we just walk through the wall? Because after all, right, the wall is just nothing other than the word of Hashem, right? And like, you know. There's no, and so, you know, Tzadikim, they can do that. Does anyone know what the Alter Rebbe's response was? Just because we can does not mean we should. Meaning, meaning, let's go back to, was Marisha Feinstein saying I'm physically incapable of walking through the, in front of this person? Of course, he's not stupid, right? He's physically capable, right? But just because he can doesn't mean... He should and he really shouldn't. Why shouldn't he? Because it says in halacha. Well, now, the altar was saying, look, is it possible for a tzaddik to ignore the physical reality and walk right through it? Yeah. But does Hashem want a tzaddik to just disregard physical reality for his own convenience or only if it brings, serves some sort of higher purpose? Only if it serves some higher purpose. And if it's not going to serve a higher purpose here, then should we do it? No. Because that's not the will of the king. Just because we can. And that's because there's someone above us. So that's, in that level, all mitzvahs are the same. Got it? 
Okay. But then you have something here that's called mitzvahs Hashem, mitzvah Savai, the four-letter name of Hashem. And the four-letter name of Hashem represents many things. For our purposes here, it represents the idea that there's complexity. Right? So, I will write out the four letters of Hashem's name. Okay? Ready? The four letters of Hashem's name. What? I wrote it out. I wrote it out of here. I'm going to write it out again. First hay, right? There's the first hay. That's Hashem's right hand. The last hay, that's Hashem's right foot. Well, you know how you write hay in Hebrew? That's how you spell the letter hay, right? So every hay has another hay in it. But the yods don't have. They do, actually. I can make the chart more complicated, but I wanted. What? Where's the dollar? What? No. Yud. Yud of Dalit. I could make it more complicated, but then we have to learn more Kabbalah. Basically like this. You're created in the image of God. And I mean that physically. You have a Yud. And then your body is a? And you have five fingers on your right hand, which is a? And you have five fingers on your right foot, which is a? In Hebrew, they're called fingers. In Hebrew, they're called etzbot. They're called fingers. And then you have, because every hay is doubled, you get also the left side, but the left one is supposed to be smaller, meaning weaker. Okay, so the four-letter name of Hashem represents, just like our body is a complex thing, and different limbs and organs do different things, so too the four letters of Hashem's name represent that kind of complexity, which for some reason, just one second, people feel it's important to make charts like this to explain to you how that complexity works. Does this chart help you? Do you now understand it? Okay. Anyway, this chart helps you, right? But it just tells you there's a complex system going on there, yeah. and there's a complex system going on here, yeah. that kind of parallels the complex system over here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if these are the mitzvahs Havaya, and Havaya has this complex structure, so then every mitzvah is bringing out something different, right? Yeah. Okay. And so we say in this sense, it's, here we say that the 248 mitzvahs are the 248 limbs of the king. Meaning, yes, we can just talk about the authority of the king. We can go a little bit deeper and say the king has a body. 
right? There's the king's authority, which spreads out the people, but there's the actual personage of the king. Which what? Then why are we doing this way? Because do you ever like spending time with other people? Yeah. Okay. Who? Totally. I do. Okay. What do you like doing with them? Lots of things. That is good. Lots of things. More than one thing. Going out. You like going out. You like making dinner together. Okay, that's two. Okay. So there are two activities that you can do jointly for our purposes right now. You can go out together and you can make food together. Okay. Why don't you just go out together instead of making food together? We also need dinner sometimes. No, no, but just just cut out the going making food together and just go out together. For the rest of your life, only go out together, never make food together. No, Uh, different experiences, right? And each one has something that the other lacks, right? Correct. And so the relationship is much better when it has elements of both. Okay. Well, each mitzvah brings out a different flavor, a different coloring of God's light. Okay, I understand that. Part. And that. The point of like the wings of the king in my like I don't. One second. And so, just like your body, remember we have to we have to just like your body, your arms do different things than your eyes, and your eyes do different things than your feet. So to each mitzvah brings out a different revelation of Hashem. In other words, in this level, each mitzvah is a vessel. And so each mitzvah touches the doer, assuming that the doer is sensitive, right? We spoke about this yesterday, right? If you're blind to the revelation, but assuming you're sensitive, it touches the person doing the mitzvah in a totally different way, right? And so what the, the way that you come close to Hashem in Shema, or it's more accurate, the way Hashem is revealed to you in Shema, is not the same way he's revealed to you in helping an orphaned bride. And so it has a different effect on you. And this young child could tell the difference. Like The effect of reciting, of encountering Hashem through Shema didn't happen to you today. And they said, yeah, we know, because we were busy encountering Hashem in this other mitzvah. And that's a different kind of an experience. And every mitzvah is different, right? And so when we speak about every mitzvah being different, we're saying, because every mitzvah is like this, every mitzvah is a vessel for the light. And every vessel unites with the light it's in, which means it flavors it, it colors it, right? And in that sense, every mitzvah is different. Every mitzvah is unique. And one mitzvah can't replace another mitzvah. Okay? Now here's the thing. What is it that brings me to do these mitzvahs is different than what brings me to do these mitzvahs. I mean, I'm not talking about the act, I'm talking in your relationship. What is it that brings me to do mitzvah samelech? Well, we just said, recognizing God's authority. That's right. But what is it that brings me to mitzvah savaya is what we learned in this chapter, which is the love of Hashem. I love Him. I want to be close to Him. I can't become close to Him by wanting to be close to Him, right? He's not a person. I can only be close to Him if He does what? And he, how many different ways? 248, because it's only the positives. It's only the positives. The 248, he reaches out to me in 240 different ways, and each way is a different vessel, and his light is experienced differently. And so my sense of who he is is going to be different. Again, assuming I'm not spiritually blind. We are, no? Most of us are. We can work on it. But even if we don't experience it consciously, it still affects us differently. Okay. So, so for instance, this... what? Does the way the mitzvah is done also affect the way you get it? Sure, sure. The way the mitzvah is done. For instance, if I put on, this is what we said, if I put on tefillin without love, it's not such a good vessel. But it's 
for this. It's still a vessel, but it's not such a good vessel. It's going to be dimmer, more distorted. And if I do it with love, what if I do it with ulterior motives? It's going to be some grime around the vessel. That's not the discussion. The discussion is, so there's a whole level of the mitzvah where the mitzvah is about, okay? So we could say like this, let's use some English. There's the idea, okay, that mitzvahs are all about Hashem's what? I can't spell. You guys have to spell. I-T-Y. I-T-Y. Instead of the A. Okay, but then there's a then there's another thing, which is that mitzvahs are about Hashem reaching out to us, and when He reaches out to us, does He He reaches out in different ways, right? Just like we connect each other different ways, yeah. And in that sense, every mitzvah is different. Make sense? Okay. But here's the thing, if I'm reaching out to somebody, and this is very important, if I'm reaching out, right, reaching out means what you're getting is not the same thing as quiet deep down inside, right? Like we spoke about the vessels, right? It's going through some kind of an alteration, some kind of a, a coloring. Okay, now, I'll tell you a quick story. One time the Tzemach Tzedek, who is the Rebbe on the middle left, was sitting on his grandfather's lap, the Al-Jebbe, who was in the top left. And the Al-Jebbe said, where is Zaidi? I mean, where is the grandfather? So he pointed to the Al-Jebbe's beard, and he says, no, that's Zaidi's beard. So he pointed to Al-Jebbe's eyebrows, he had big eyebrows. He said, no, those are Zaidi's eyebrows. And this kept having pointed to different things, Zaidi's nose, Zaidi's eyes. Where, how do you know this? How do I know this? Where, where does it um, it's a sikh of the previous rabbi. He knows it because I believe his uncle told him. His uncle told him because... Where does uncle hear it from? Fine. Probably from one of the Tzemach sons, my guess, who probably heard it from the Tzemach That's probably how it went down, but I'm guessing at that point. Um, and... So the Tzemach Tzedek had enough of this. He was like three, four, five years old, something like this. He had enough of this. He got off the, the Al-Jebba's lap, went into another room. After a few minutes, he made a large crashing sound. And the Al-Jebba came running. Oh, and he screamed, sorry. He screamed, Zaidi. And the Al-Jebba comes running, and he's there smiling, saying, there's Zaidi. <laughs> and so the point is that there's all these different things, but they're, but they're different. And, 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 and since the Al-Jebba is just one person, right, it can't be, he's not the beard, he's not this, he's not any of those things. But then his point was that there's something that your whole being comes into, that's you. And so there's another way of thinking about a mitzvah is like this. It's not Hashem is reaching out to us. Because if Hashem is reaching out to us, right, then what's happening? There's a calling. There's different things, right? right. Yeah. You can think of it as something else. That a mitzvah is actually Hashem himself. That what you're getting is, that a mitzvah is a garment for Hashem's light. If a mitzvah is a garment for Hashem's light, then Hashem is coming, then Hashem is not, he's not, he's not coming in a particular way, he's just, he's just there. But then he's not coming into you. That's right. That's right. Right? 
You can also think of a mitzvah as just him, himself. So here's the thing. When I do a mitzvah, am I A, affirming Hashem's authority over myself and the universe? B, providing Hashem an opportunity to reach out to me? Or C, creating a space where Hashem can fully be present? All of the above. I'm doing all three. Now, the question is, which one do I relate to in my notes? When I subjectively talk about what am I doing subjectively, that can vary, right? In fact, I might not be subjectively doing any of them. Maybe I'm just trying to impress other people, right? Maybe I'm doing something without thinking it's out of habit. I don't like. But consciously, my, what I'm doing might vary. But any time you do a mitzvah, right? So, so. When you say authority, what does that mean again? Mitzvah What does the word authority mean? It means someone is in charge of you. You're not Hefker. They're in charge. You've got to do what they say. So, when you make a bracha, number one, objectively speaking, what did you just do? You showed that God is in charge. You created an opportunity for Hashem to reach out to you, right? And you also created a little space where Hashem can fully be present, can, can be the light that reveals Hashem as it truly is, is present fully. And if you think about it, in that sense, the mitzvah, so if you think about it here, the mitzvah is a garment, right? Because the, the mitzvah is like, it's not the point, you fill it in bracha, it doesn't matter. It's the, when you did this, Hashem, him, Hashem himself is there. And then, but you think about how he's reaching out to you, he reaches out to you differently in the bracha than in the tefillin, than in the Shabbos candle, than in the mikvah, than whatever, right? Every mitzvah he reaches out to you in a different way. In that sense, the mitzvah is a vessel. But then if you think over here, Hashem's authority, which is not really so much in this chapter, does it matter which mitzvah it is? In that sense, the mitzvahs go back to being like garments. Yeah, so it's just a garment. But what's clothed in the garment here is his authority, not him himself. So... There's different elements to the mitzvah, and a lot of what Hasidus is, on the intellectual side, is understanding these things and seeing how they fit together. And on the actual human side, is learning how to relate to these things and then dealing with the tension of trying to relate to multiple things at the same time. It is hard to, at the same time, feel like I'm doing an act of submitting to God's authority while simultaneously giving him the opportunity to reach out to me because I love him, while simultaneously surrendering to the fact that he's just full, that I'm just creating a space where he's fully present. Those are like how do you genuinely relate to all three of those things simultaneously in the same act without like tearing yourself apart spiritually? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I feel like these are things that could work together. It's just that I don't. I'm not saying they can't, but that's the, that a lot of Hasidus is about guidance for how to actually do that. Not that it's impossible. It's very possible. Yeah, like none of these are necessarily contradictions of each other. No, they're not. The, 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 but these are things that still... But how do we come right, to right. So there's the intellectual question, how do we intellectually make sense of it all? And then there's how do we emotionally relate to it all? Okay. But there are three different levels of mitzvah. And what messes people up a lot is that what happens when I'm talking about mitzvahs on this level and you're talking about mitzvahs on that level and we don't acknowledge that there's these different levels of relating to the mitzvah. Are we going to end up getting frustrated with each other? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, are, 
if there are differences between one mitzvah and another mitzvah? It depends what you mean. In the sense of acknowledging God's authority? No. In the sense that of how he reaches out to me, how he is revealed in my life, assuming I'm sensitive, there's a huge difference between one mitzvah and another mitzvah. In the sense that a mitzvah creates a space where God is fully present as he is unto himself, there's no difference. And what the Alter Rebbe is doing is shifting between the previous paragraph and this paragraph is shifting between talking about mitzvahs here to start talking about how mitzvahs also have this other level. That's where we're going to start talking about that. Until now, we're going to talk about mitzvahs as an extension, a garment of how we feel towards Hashem and how they fulfill that. And now we're going to move to the fact that mitzvahs are much more than that. They're also something that are one with him. They're his very presence. And that's what we're going to elaborate on that next week. So we're going to move from thinking about mitzvahs as vessels to mitzvahs as garments. But not garments of his authority. That level also exists. We're going to talk about that. Garments of his very being. It's very self. Thank you. All right.